All right, I'd like to go ahead and invite you to turn with, your, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 2. Uh, this morning we'll be in verses 13 through 25. So John 2, 13 through 25. Uh, the title of this message is called Zeal for God's House. Uh, and you might be a little sick of the word zeal by the time we're done with this, because I like to use it a lot in this, in this sermon. I preached it a couple times before this. So. Um, now, as you're turning there, though, you'll notice that uh, this passage is the one in which a lot of us already know. It's the one where Jesus cleansed the temple, right? And a lot of times, uh, for any of us who would dare admit, like myself, that we actually have seen those old like Jesus films back in the day, right? Uh, we think of angry Jesus, you know, we think of Jesus in these terms, and there's a reason why we have the second commandment, of course, not to do those things, not to fill our minds with false images of Jesus. But we often, including myself, often come to this passage thinking, wow, Jesus was so angry, what was going on there? Um, and we honestly miss the heart of Jesus in this passage. Because again, our minds are usually cluttered by these fake or false images of Jesus that our culture throws at us. Um, so I want us to be mindful of this as we come to the reading of God's word. But as we have a brief illustration before we come to read John 2 this morning, I want to share a quick story. I'm not normally a story guy, by the way, when it comes to sermons, but I think this is a really, really important one to, to share with you all. See, a while back, uh, a dear friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine in Lynchburg named Brett Eubank, wonderful guy, a dear, dear friend of mine, he and his family, uh, as a pastor, as you can imagine, needed a much, well, they had a much needed vacation ahead of them. Um, you know, he is a hard worker, so is his wife, she works at Liberty, and they just were able to get away for four days back in, I think it was February, and, uh, and so they invited me and my dog <laughs> to come over to their house uh, because they have a little dog uh, who's two years old named Annabelle, a little golden retriever, cutest little thing. Uh, has anybody ever had like a golden retriever before? Yeah, you, you know, you know. It's like you can't get angrier than ever. <laughs> they might run away from you, but you still can't get angry. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyways, but my dog Baxter is the same age as little Annabelle, their little golden retriever. Uh, my dog's a chocolate lab, by the way. I can show you pictures later if you want. Um, also very cute in my opinion. Um, but he is like best friends with little Annabelle. And so uh, my friend Brett and his wife Denise said, oh yeah, just bring Baxter with you. They can play in the house and all. And as you can imagine, I mean, those two dogs had the time of their lives those three days. I was able to look them outside in a fenced-in yard, which I don't have in downtown Lynchburg. I live in an apartment with no fenced-in yard, no yard really. So my dog's always on his leash, but he was actually able to get out and run freely for a while, right? And so they were chasing balls chasing sticks, chasing each other back and forth, back and forth for three whole days until on the final day, right before Brett and Denise got back from their vacation, it ended up pouring down rain like all day long. Kind of like what it was doing yesterday when I was driving down here. <laughs> Maybe not a tropical storm, but it was a lot of rain. And you have to understand in Lynchburg, Virginia, I think a few of you guys have been there, but when it rains in Lynchburg, it rains. It gets all muddy and nasty, and, and all of us, even the students there at Liberty, call it Drenchburg whenever it rains, because everything is just so muddy. And so, of course, the two dogs spent most of that day, the fourth day, inside the house with good reason, until they kept on begging me and begging me and begging me to go outside. They were getting antsy and a little anxious. So I figured, okay, what, what harm could happen in just a couple minutes as I let them outside just to run and get some energy off, right? Exactly. <laughs> like, like, you know where this is going, right? <laughs> so when they came back in, they were soaked head to tail, muddied, by the way, like, like caked in mud already. And then immediately they were off. 
inside my friend's house, running circles around the living room, tracking in mud of all varieties, and jumping on not so much Brett's furniture, but Denise's furniture. You know the difference? (laughs) But Denise's clean white couches, pure snow white, right? Not anymore. (laughs) Needless to say, I separated those two dogs faster than you can blink. But sadly, the mud had already made its way into my friend's house. And so an hour later, and definitely a bath later, uh, those two dogs were cleaned up. But then the real work began. (laughs) The work that I had to do. (laughs) So I began feverishly, with hours left before Denise and Brett would get home, I feverishly began cleaning up their house to the best of my ability. I'll tell you the ending later on, by the way. (laughs) Not now. (laughs) But for now, just know that this morning, here in our passage, we're about to explore a far greater act of cleaning or cleansing. See, here in John chapter 2, 13 through 25, we see the very zeal, again, the heart of Jesus for God's own house utterly consume him. And it consumed him to the point that he had to physically remove those figurative dogs in the temple of God, the ones who had muddied up the spiritual worship of God's people. But this passage is so much more than just a mere cleaning spree. See, this passage is especially relevant today to us as the church here in the 21st century for reasons you can probably imagine already. And this proves that Jesus is zealous for our purification. And that will be the theme of today's sermon. See, after all, we ourselves are not all unlike those two retrievers drawn into the muddy mess of the world throughout the week, are we not? See, you may even personally right now this morning feel muddy right now especially in this place of worship where we gather together and we all put our suits, at least I am putting my suit on and whatever. We look all nice and fancied up and everything, but we are secretly harboring pain and anxiety and, and hurt and maybe sins that we have done or sins that have been done, have been done against us. And so even here in this place of worship, we often carry guilt and shame into this place and we feel muddied up by the world. But friends, the gospel of Jesus tells us that he will not keep you in that muddied estate. See, he loves you far too much to let you go and wallow out in the mud of this world. Rather, in his goodness, he beckons us back in. He washes us thoroughly and welcomes us back lovingly into his own home. But why? Why? It's so that you and I, as believers, may enjoy purified, grace-filled fellowship with him. And so, friends, if you catch nothing else this morning, catch this uh, big idea, if you will, that Jesus is zealous for your purification. And we'll see this in our text, namely in three ways, in which he zealously cleansed the temple, and he zealously cleansed the church, and he is still willing and able to cleanse us as individuals here, right here at Good Shepherd Reformed. So let's go ahead and read from God's word now at this time. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, says the following to us. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And so making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, 
zeal for your house has consumed me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, unchanging, inerrant, infallible, inspired, holy word. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word that is indeed faithful and true and given to us in love. We thank you, O Lord, that it is your divine word which alone can truly minister to our hearts. And so, Lord, I ask in this uh, 25 minutes or so that you would speak to us through your holy word, that I myself as your messenger would get out of the way and that your Holy Spirit would do the power of convicting us by your word of truth, convicting us in matters of of spiritual discipleship and discipline, O oh Lord, correcting us where we are wayward in our thinking, but also positively in growing us, O oh Lord, so that we might see the risen Christ and, and just be all the more smitten by him and desire to be with him for all eternity. O oh Lord, cause this holy flame for Christ's holy name to rise up within our own souls in this hour. And so we pray this. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, we see, again, this comforting truth that Jesus is zealous for our purification on display in how he zealously cleansed the temple, the church, and ourselves, right? Those three points. The first of which comes to us from verses 13 through 17, in how he zealously cleansed the temple. Again, our passage tells us this, starting in verse 13. Uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and those who were, I'm sorry, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time, unless you want to stay around for a few hours, <laughs> to unpack, I know I don't, but, but to unpack the fuller context of the Passover meal this morning, the context of what was going on with this week-long Passover celebration. However, it is most important for us to know that this meal that they were leading up to in their worship time was a gift from God's own hand given to God's own people. It was, as our Westminster Confession puts it, an Old Testament sacrament that God had established all the way back in Exodus 12 in order to represent Christ as the true Passover lamb. But not only did it represent Christ well in advance of his coming when God gave it to the Israelites back in Exodus, but it also represented all the benefits, the benefits for us as people in that Old Testament sacrament. And so here in John 2, we see the Passover as the occasion and the temple as the location of this week-long celebration. You gotta love cheesy rhymes, right? <laughs> Makes it memorable. And so believers were drawn to Jerusalem from all across the known world to God's holy place during this week. This was a place that was holy and set apart and was never to even have a hint of false worship ever enter into it. And so in John 2, verse 13, 
unironically enough, we see Jesus go into the temple, into that holy place, the house of his father. But humanly speaking, we might wonder, well, why did Jesus have to go into the temple in the first place? I mean, it was for sacrifices after all, right? It's like, why did Jesus have to go in there? Well, he did it for two key, very theological reasons. First, to perfectly obey the law of God on our behalf, you know, what theologians call the active obedience of Christ, him perfectly obeying the law in our stead and then giving that righteousness to us. And second, he did it in order to lead us in what right worship looks like. So perfectly obeying and then perfectly paving the way for us to do the same as believers. And so in this way, he proved himself to be both fully God, who alone could satisfy the law, but also fully man in leading us, right? We see his humanity and his divinity right here in John 2, verse 13. But when Jesus entered the temple, he became furious, right? We saw in our text what happened. But what did he see exactly? What was going on? Well, he saw the slippery slope of sloppy worship. He saw the love of money replacing the love of God. He saw evil men leeching off of those who had traveled far and wide just to worship God through animal sacrifice. But the thing was, is that most of those people who came had actually disobeyed God's law. They didn't prepare their sacrifices well in advance as God had commanded them to do in the Pentateuch. They actually uh, were a little cheap, <laughs> a little too frugal, maybe a little stingy with their finances. And they actually decided to buy those animals for sacrifice in the moment. And so what happened? Well, the people were taken advantage of. Even the people who had come to worship, they wanted to worship God rightly, but they weren't. They were already disobeying God's law. And so evil men the money changers by name, took advantage of God's people. See, these money changers didn't just set up shop outside the temple walls, though. No, they actually dared to take the place of God's worship inside the temple courts. And to add insult to injury, then, to the people, let alone God, they charged the people around four times the going rate of those animal sacrifices. You know, Tom and Colleen and I were talking about inflation last night, or maybe this morning, I forget. I think it was this morning. Talking about inflation, though, like four times the going rate, <laughs> 400 times, or 400%. It's crazy. And so their worship, though, because of their love of money and holding on to their own money, had caused them to adulterate their worship. And all for the cause of capital C, convenience, those worshipers there in Israel fell prey, in effect, to a den of robbers. Now these robbers had stolen so many things. They had stolen the attention of the people, first of all, away from a true heart of brokenness and contriteness and replaced that heart of worship with a concern over just how many animals they could buy there in the moment to appease God and pay their dues to him. These robbers though had also stolen the significance of grace, grace by faith and replaced grace with a focus on trying to earn God's favor, insisting that the people had to buy all these animals from them. And furthermore, these robbers stole the joy of the people's salvation and exchanged this joy with a dry, ritualistic, man-centered religion. And above all, these robbers, the worst offense of it all, these robbers sought to steal God's glory by replacing what had been set apart for holy use 
with noisy shops and stands and stalls of various kinds, lining their tables with coins from all around the known world within God's own holy house. It's no wonder that Jesus became rightly furious at this debacle. See, our God is a jealous God, and he will not ever share his glory with any other, nor will he ever let, and please catch this, he will never let his people be abused or extorted in their worship. And so Jesus threw down the gauntlet and fashioned together a whip of cords, as it says. He used, in other words, every necessary force to drive the workers of evil out from that holy place of worship. He poured out their coins, he overturned their tables, and he spoke clearly to all who heard, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Powerful words, huh? But brothers and sisters, if we're being honest with ourselves, we are not all that unlike the people there in John chapter 2. See, we may not think of breaking God's commandments in terms of robbery. I often don't. But every time that we choose our own personal comforts, our own concerns, or our own conveniences again, over worshiping God wholeheartedly, we are effectively robbing him. And beyond robbing him even, we rob ourselves. We rob ourselves of his joy, his goodness, and his grace, that fellowship with him. And so we need our worship to be purified. That's why Jesus is so, is so zealous for this. And so this brings us to point number two. See, not only did Jesus zealously cleanse the temple, he essentially promised to cleanse his bride, the church, later on in verses 18 through 22. And he did this, as we know, in the fullness of time, in his atoning death and resurrection bodily from the grave. Look with me, if you will, at what the Jews asked of him then in verse 18. See, after he kicked out the money changers, they asked him this question. They said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, won't you show us a symbol of your authority? Now, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience here, but if you've ever been pulled over on the side of the highway, you know, for going a little over the speed limit, uh, you know what happens next, right? The cop comes around to the car. Again, totally, this has never happened to me before. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> But what are they required to show you? What is the police officer required to show you? The badge, exactly. You know, otherwise, how can you trust them? Like, who are you to actually pull me over, right? So they have to show you their badge. Well, that's effectively what the Jews were asking of Jesus. They were basically saying, to paraphrase, Jesus, what is the basis of your authority? I mean, sure, we also want to worship God, but we couldn't have been the ones to actually drive out those money changers. We couldn't do it. Only God could. So who gave you the right were you just feeling fed up and a little rebellious in the moment? Or were you acting on behalf of God, the Father Almighty in heaven? How did Jesus answer them? I love the way that he answered them here because it's mysterious. And most people are blind, honestly, to why he did this. You know how he answered him and them? He prophesied. He prophesied. See, he purposefully guised his own spiritual and magisterial or kingly authority in the most profound of all ways. He said this prophetically, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, at this point, they were just curious. Now they were provoked, right? And so they essentially retorted, who do you think you are? <laughs> it took us 46 years to build this temple. Who are you? 
See, sadly, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, missed the whole point of what Jesus was saying. See, he was speaking, as the word tells us, about the temple of his body. For he himself is the glory of God in the flesh. He himself is the dwelling place of God with man. He himself is the Lamb of God who is the true and better temple. And he refused to allow this picture of himself prefigured in that earthly temple back in the day to ever become tainted with sin. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, in quote, Jesus here, Old Testament, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Praise the Lord. See, Jesus didn't need to assume any degree of authority. It was already his. I think all of us were, of course, there for Sunday school just an hour ago. Talking about Machen, you know, the old Presbyterian minister. And one of my favorite lines of Machen is when he said this concerning Jesus. He said that Jesus claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. In other words, he didn't need to uh, just pretend like he had it. No, 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 he actually did. He didn't say only thus says the Lord. He said, no, I say to you, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, get that? He is God. He legislates for the kingdom of God. And so he is therefore our true prophet, priest, and king. And he would prove this trifle divine authority in these offices in both his unjust death, but also his bodily resurrection. See, friends, as true prophet, Christ dictates God's truth. As true priest, he cleanses God's people. And as true king, he rules over God's people with righteousness and fairness. But friends, in his mercy, of which we just sang, his mercy that is truly more, he has gone to the most extreme of all measures to purify us, to set us apart for his holy use. And so just as the prophet Moses, Moses who was consumed after coming down from Mount Sinai, after seeing God. He was consumed with the worship of God, right worship that is, upon returning from that mountain. So much so that when he saw the Israelites bowing the knee to a golden calf, he came right over to them and just destroyed it. And then he instated God's law for the good of his people. Jesus, as the true and the better prophet, far better than Moses, does not want his church to ever become enslaved or captivated by even a hint of false worship or the golden calves that we often so bow down to ourselves and our culture. This is why here at Good Shepherd Reformed, I wasn't surprised at all to see that we sing here God's own thoughts and songs and prayers back to his listening ears every Sunday. Not surprised at all to see it already. It's why we here are so careful not to conform the content of our worship to the passing fads and the whims of this culture. It is why you, friends here, treasure the gospel of Christ and him crucified and have not replaced the message of the gospel with ideologies of self-help or politically driven speeches or entertaining light shows as so many churches sadly have done nowadays. I didn't see any fog machines, at least on the way. <laughs> But in the positive, friends, right worship, right worship, 
is why we lift each other up in fervent prayer every Sunday. It's why we pray with earnestness for God to answer us, to hear us, and for his glory to be made known here in our midst as you all grow numerically and in influence in this community. And it is why we do the hard work of openly confessing our sins to one another in the hopes that as we do that, we will only grow closer together as the body of Christ, being healed and coming out of, a, out of our brokenness together as the body. And so friends, do you hunger? I feel like I already know the answer of this. <laughs> but do you hunger for the word of Christ and for the freedom that the gospel affords you? Is, you, is Christ your first love in these things, in your worship? If so, yours will then be a spiritual vitality that is only to be spurred onward and upward. Yours will be a pleasing aroma of Christ and a fragrant offering of praise before God most high. And this act of worship continued week in and week out, as you already are doing, will be a fragrant offering. And it will be a direct fulfillment even of what Christ accomplished for you back when he died for you upon that cross when he bought and cleansed and purified his bride once for all time there 2,000 years ago. In the words of one of my favorite professors up at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, Dr. Johnny Gibson, he said this one time, that it is from Christ's riven side that God brought forth his bride. But why? Why would he, the spotless Holy One, lay down his life for us individuals, us filthy, vile sinners, let alone the church? Well, friends, it was all, all for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, despising its shame. See, Jesus' joy, his zeal, his burning, fiery passion is for the cleansing and perfecting of his bride whom he has now clothed in the garments of his holy righteousness. And so in John 2, we see that Jesus cleansed the temple. And in his death and resurrection, he cleansed the church. But friend, finally, do you believe in your own heart of hearts that Jesus is able and willing, in fact, even zealous, dare I say, to cleanse you, dear sister or brother in Christ? See, his zeal for every member of God's house in his zeal, rather, for every member of God's house. Jesus stands ready and eager even now, right now, to cleanse you and to wash you as with the waters of baptism and the word of truth. And we see Jesus' heart for his people, even implicitly, in the final three verses here in our passage. But please hear me correctly. See, this, this call to be purified by Christ is not just an evangelistic call. You know, to come to Jesus for the first time and to be justified by faith before God, although that certainly is true. And if you are not yet a believer in Christ, this invitation is open before you in the free offer of the gospel today. But friends, this is also, and I think more primarily so, a call to you who already are believers to know and to enjoy the ongoing experience of sanctification, purification, as the gospel washes over you and refreshes you day by day. 
See, the glory of Jesus' cleansing work in us as believers is that he neither requires nor expects us, thankfully, to ever clean up our own selves in order to commune with him by prayer and the reading of his word. In fact, he knows our hearts as the final few verses here in John 2 say. He knows the heart of man. He knows that we are unable to present ourselves as pure and holy before God. So friends, the good news is that confession of our sin and even especially of our humble reliance upon him, that's all that he requires of us. And can it be, right? Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? But friends, he does not entrust himself to even our noblest desires to please him. And he knows that we have a failed ability to clean up our own selves, as verse 24 implies. Rather, it is solely by faith in his name that we are made clean and justified. Justified by faith alone in Christ. And so there is a powerful final application here of this gospel truth for you and for me. See, later on in the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that our own bodies are temples in which the Holy Spirit resides. The text there in 1 Corinthians 6 says this, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, so do what? Glorify God in your body. Friend, you might be thinking, maybe saying, in your own heart, even in doubtful response right now, yeah, but Rich, I don't, I don't feel clean. I feel kind of muddy like those dogs from earlier, right? I mean, I've desecrated my own body. I've entertained lustful thoughts. Even as a Christian, I have fallen prey to foreign loves, things that have taken my heart away from Christ in years past, maybe even present struggles. So how can Jesus actually want me? And so to you, dear Christian, maybe even struggling Christian right now in this place, and I mean this with all sincerity, Jesus knew all that you ever have done and ever will do, and yet he proved how much he loved you and that he would love you and give himself for you by willfully dying for you upon that cross. See, his cleansing of the physical temple, honestly, it pales in comparison to his cleansing of us as church and us as individuals, doesn't it? And it even pales in comparison to his willingness, his desire, to cleanse you and remove every last one of your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. And so as we close, I want to turn our mind's eye back to those uh, two little puppies. Because we all like stories about puppies, right? (laughs) Well, in the midst of my sheer and utter panic over those two dogs that had been let back into the house and they were all muddied, As they tracked that mud into the clean house, and especially those clean, pure white sofas, <laughs> my dog Baxter, in the thick of all that, he came right up to me. See, he, he knew, just based upon my facial expressions <laughs> and my tone of voice, that I was livid over what he had just done. I mean, Annabelle didn't pick up on them. She, she wasn't my dog, <laughs> but my dog did pick up on that. <laughs> and so he began to sulk. I saw his face just kind of go down like that. And immediately, of course, my heart became full of pity over him. Now, admittedly, he's just a dog, right? He's not a human, just for the record. <laughs> Dogs are not humans, <laughs> no matter what, what our post-liberal culture might say later on down the road. <laughs> Dogs are not humans. 
But you know what? I couldn't help but feel compassion for this little animal because he's my dog. And so I rushed over to him, gave him a giant hug, mud and all. (laughs) And my love for him, even as a little puppy, compelled me to comfort him in the midst of his dirtiness. And then, after hugging him, (laughs) to proceed to wash him thoroughly. Friends, this is the kind of love that Jesus has for you. And in fact, his love for you is far greater than just that. See, your dirtiness, as great as it may be, is of no surprise to him. He knows it full well. And yet he is still zealous for your purification as the gospel of grace makes inroads into every last part of your life. As long as we're here on this side of glory. He is still zealous for your humble reliance upon him. He's still zealous for your joy in knowing the liberty of a clean conscience before the Father of mercies. And he who was now raised from the dead will at last raise you too with a body finally, finally incorruptible. And so believe the word which he, Jesus, still speaks over each one of us who comes to him by faith. I will. I want to. Be clean. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your gracious condensation to us, how you have delivered to us your word so that it might direct our minds back to you. Father, forgive us, O Lord, even here in this place, for being so quick to wallow in the mud of this world. Forgive us, O Lord. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins to you. Lord, we know that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. Jesus, we thank you for the sweet power, the powerful word, really, that your blood speaks over us. A word that is better than the blood of Abel, a word that only Jesus can speak, forgiveness. And so, Lord, let us receive that. Let us walk with a clean conscience in light of Christ's purity, Christ's righteousness, Christ's holiness all the days of our lives. And may we lean upon him in all things. So we pray this in his holy name. Amen.